0: So, the Exodus, here we go. Uh, Maybe have your Bible open in Exodus chapter 1, just a couple of uh, pages back from where we were just uh, there in that reading. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 6 covers a period of about 400 years. So, they went down to Egypt. Why? Because Joseph had gone down to Egypt. There was a famine. His whole family went and joined him there in Egypt. And that's where they were for 400 years. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Why is that important? God's promise, absolutely. God is keeping his promise. In a sense, they were living their ordinary lives, but quietly, unassumingly, almost unnoticed as the years passed, God was being faithful to his covenant promise. But trouble was just around the corner. The powers of darkness are ready to strike. Now notice the similarities between the beginning of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. There is blessing and fruit in the garden of Eden but the powers of darkness were ready to strike to snatch if they could that blessing out of the hands of human beings whenever you move into God's blessing be aware and be ready for the powers to strike here we are in the new test in the old testament very clearly in Genesis, uh, a typical Jewish storytelling repeats the themes, the cyclical, the cycle of history, drawing out for the Jewish mind these truths. The blessing of God, the powers are ready to strike. Jesus described it like this. He said there are powers and they're like a thief that comes always to kill and to destroy, to steal, to rob what God wants to give you. As you move into God's blessing you will experience the attack of the powers in greater measure. Just last Sunday morning, as we walked out of church, someone was talking to me about the way God has moved them to a much greater, fuller place than they'd ever known in their lives. But how the attack of the powers has become so evident and so strong. Let's not be fooled or naive, let's be, on our guard. So this parallel then between Genesis 1 and Exodus 1, or the first few chapters of Genesis and Exodus 1, Adam and Eve were fruitful, the enemy comes along in the form of a snake. The Israelites are being fruitful, God's covenant promise to them is being made known in their lives, and the enemy comes along not now as a snake, but as Pharaoh, the god, small g, of the known world. Pharaoh was believed to be a god who embodied, who ruled the pantheon of gods, Egyptian gods, that controlled their lives. The god was coming along and saying, we're not happy about this. A new king, a new god, who did not know about Joseph, came to Egypt Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous. Come, we must deal shrewdly. Isn't that an enemy word? Let's deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Notice it was totally unfair. There's no no reason to assume that whatsoever. Deception, the shrewdness of the enemy. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for them. For Pharaoh. And then we know what's always true. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The promise of the living God will always overrule the power of the earthly gods. That's the story here way back in the Old Testament, building the foundations for the people of God. As John would say, thousands of years later, greater is he that is in us than the one that's in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, the gods, the powers of their age, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Cheering? and applauding wildly could not be considered inappropriate at that moment. Whether we believe that or not, that the God in us is greater than the God in the world, is the touchstone, the mega theme of these opening verses through Exodus. Is God big enough? Is he faithful enough, powerful enough to deliver them? Would Moses believe that he was? Would Pharaoh believed that the living God was bigger and greater than the gods he represented, the gods that he himself embodied? Would the Israelites believe that their God was powerful enough? The next few chapters are about Moses, the man God was raising up to be the human figurehead of this deliverance. As Donald pointed out, It was a long time for Moses to get ready. Heard that already in these stories? A long time to get ready. God's timing is different to ours. And it's there during that incident with the bush that was not burning, God speaks to Moses about going back to Egypt, some 40 years of preparation in the desert to lead the people out of slavery. Moses was about as willing as we are, and eventually he went. What follows is this story of God delivering the people, leading them out of slavery in Egypt, and broadly speaking, it has two parts. The first part is all about getting them out of Egypt. The second part is all about getting Egypt out of them. Both needed to take place. For the people to walk in freedom. Metaphorically, you see, we are all in Egypt. We are all in a place or places of oppression. We are all slaves to things or to ideologies or to feelings. We're all trapped and we all need deliverance from life under the rule of the gods of our age. We all need to get out of Egypt. Our symptoms may be different, but our bondage is essentially the same. What today do you long to be free from? Suddenly some of you may have realised why you're in church this morning. What do you long to be free from? if you're not sure you have anything to be free from, then the gods of this age have been so clever that they have taught you that you are free when you are still in chains. Unless you're perfect. And can I have coffee with you afterwards then? That part of your life that is still trapped, that part of you where you feel your back is still against the wall. Is it your work, your family, your marriage, or your lack of any of those things? Is it your health or somebody else's health? Is it your sense of purpose or identity or your lack of it? We've all been in Egypt. And we all need to know that God hears our cry. And that might be it for you. You might tune out now the rest of what I say. Because all you needed to hear this morning, all you needed to know in the depth of your being is that the God of heaven and earth hears the cry of your heart. Maybe that's really hard to believe today. You see, you feel lost and alone. But God hears the cry of your heart. The worry, the fear, the sickness in your stomach, the sweats at night, the early morning panic, the late night restlessness, the stuff that nobody sees, God sees. The stuff that nobody hears, God hears. The stuff you dare ever talk about, God already knows. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. Praise Him. I've indeed seen the misery. I have heard their cries and I'm concerned about their suffering. And I'm not just concerned, I'm going to do something uh, about it. So I've come down. To rescue them. Let me find that verse. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I love the fact that even before Moses has agreed whether he's going to be part of the plan or not, God says, Well, I'm coming down to do it. I don't need you, Moses. I can do it without you. I'm offering you this partnership with me, but hey, God's not confined to whether Moses said yes or not. God doesn't bother in the end whether you say yes or not. He will do what he will do. God says, I'm coming to rescue them. You see, our lives ultimately uh, are not in the hands of human players that say yes or no to God. Ultimately, the people in Israel, but people of Israel in Egypt, were not uh, ultimately in the hands of Moses. What if he said no? God says, "I'm going to do it, whether you, Moses, say yes or not." Our lives are not in the hands of our bosses, or our surgeons, or our financial advisors, or even the thoughts, opinions, and and feelings of well-meaning friends and family. Our lives are in the hands of God, and He says, "I'll do that." I'm coming down to rescue you. That's the God that I am. God hears our cry. And God secondly has the power. That's what these plagues are all about. These plagues, you see, are not just uh, uh, odd random things that uh, God cooked up. Ooh, let's have a couple of frogs and the odd boil here and there. that's us sort them out. I mean, they're bizarre, aren't they? but they have purpose and meaning like you would expect they were a clash of the powers the plagues were a clash of the gods of the kingdoms and i'll explain that in just a moment you see moses goes down to egypt and just to fill in the story if you're not familiar with it and he says to pharaoh the most powerful man in the world come on i want you to let the israelites go The Israelites were responsible for building the economic base of Pharaoh's willpower. So he said, hmm, no. And uh, Moses says, okay, um, then we need to talk about this. And they begin a conversation. And essentially Pharaoh says to Moses, look, you cannot tell me what to do. I'm God around here. That was his belief. That was, the the whole culture served that worldview. I am the God around here. You cannot tell me what to do. And who on earth is this God you're talking about? That's what Pharaoh said. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I, I do not know. I'm the God. I do not know the Lord. And I will not let Israel go. What is it in your life? That looks the most powerful. What's the most powerful force that you face? What's the most controlling situation in which you find yourself? What's the most draining relationship, the most influencing disappointment on you? Those are the gods that keep you in Egypt. And in Egypt, there was no doubt where the power lay. Egypt had reformed out of two kingdoms. Egypt was at her most military powerful. Everywhere you look, there were these great building programs that that gave honor to the success, the might of Egypt under the gods ruled by Pharaoh incarnate. Look at all this, says Pharaoh. And sorry, who's your god that you're talking about? Who are the gods that whisper in your ear every day? And say to you, look how powerful we are. Look how controlling of you we are. Sorry, who's that God you talk about on Sunday? Moses had come prepared. And Moses says, okay, well, watch this. And Aaron throws down his staff and it turns into a snake. Pretty good. And then Pharaoh, just like he was in the playground, went, I can do that, I can do that, that's not too hard. He wheels in his magicians, and and they throw their staff down, And, and, and true enough, the same thing happened. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Do not be fooled about the power of the gods. Do not be fooled about the power of the gods. And then I love it, the next bit. It's a little tiny illustration of what's about to happen. Aaron's snake gobbles up all the others. (laughs) Deal with that. We've got your staff. And there it is. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Uh, We're at verse 12 of chapter 7, if you still have your Bible open, flicking kind of through as we go. Pharaoh hardens his heart. So Moses raises his staff and touches the river Nile. The river Nile was ruled by the female earth deity, later known as Isis. And that mighty river, ruled by that earthly deity, vital to the fertility of the land, when struck with one blow from Moses' rod, appeared to bleed to death. You have to visualize the power of the symbolism. This God that gave the whole of Egypt life through its river was felt a deadly, fatal blow with just Moses' rod. And it appeared to bleed to death. After that, a plague of frogs. The frog was the image of the goddess responsible for fertility. And it's as if God says, You can have loads of frogs. Everywhere. Can you imagine that? Who loves frogs? Who hates frogs? praise God, and then I'll take them away, and immediately all the frogs die, and they lie littered wherever they were, in your bedroom, in your street, on your kitchen table, they lay dead. Who has the power? This is a battle of the powers. And at this point, even Pharaoh's magicians go, come on, Pharaoh, come on, we can't do that. This can only be the finger of the true God. But Pharaoh would have none of it. So then he gets some uh, uh, flies, well, gnats, and then flies, and then livestock. The bull was sacred. There was an Egyptian goddess with a cow's head. Uh, and so God's just laying it on. Take whichever God you want. Bring him on. You know, it's almost like heaven's going to rocky, rocky, rocky. Do you know? Bring him on. And one by one, there's this fatal blow to the livestock, to the water system, to the land. Pharaoh still hardens his heart. And so, uh, verse 8 of chapter 9, the Lord says to Moses, take a handful of soot. It's weird, isn't it? Chuck it up. (laughs) Why? Because that's what the Egyptians used to do to try and cure plagues and pestilence and stuff. He says, do what they do, get some soot, chuck it up. And suddenly what happens, everyone's got Boils. Egypt is being brought literally to her knees. But it's a battle of the gods. This is a clash of the kingdoms. This is about who are you going to put your trust in? Who ultimately is your life safe with? Ultimately, in whose hands does your God, uh, sorry, in whose hands will you place your life? And here we see a world that refuses to bow to the God of the universe. Years later, Paul will write about a day when at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. You see, a world that refuses to bow will one day be made to bow. And that's what's happening here. Ultimately, Pharaoh will bow because God himself will bring everything and everyone that opposes him to their knees. That's always the deal. Still the refusal. The evil powers that stood behind Pharaoh are are not easily willing to release their grip. And so God turns his attention from the earth to the heavens. The realm of the male god Ra, who was responsible for the weather and the rainfall. And so we get hail. Then we get a whole load of locusts coming in on some unexpected winds, as if God is in control of the weather, rather than this god Ra that the Egyptians believed in. And then finally the sun. The physical representation of Ra in the heavens was simply blocked out by the brilliance of God's hand. And Pharaoh still says... No. How hard can someone's heart be? And so what happens next is hard for us to understand. But the consequence of willful and persistent rebellion against God will always be judged. God will never leave his glory and his honour undone. We come to the final plague, the final showdown of the gods. Pharaoh's name was Ramses, meaning son of Ra. In Egyptian thought, the king of the gods was incarnate in Pharaoh and in his firstborn son. And the God of heaven says, maybe the only way you will understand is if I take your firstborn son. And so God claimed the life of Pharaoh's firstborn son and the firstborn of every Egyptian household. There are two things here that are really important. God is faithful to his promise. And he had promised to provide and protect the people of God. He was true to his word. God has always said, way back in the story of Noah, I will judge sin. I will not stand by forever While people refused to bow, he was true to his word. And so the firstborn of the land was struck, and then Pharaoh, brought to his knees, let them go. You see, God has the power over everything that keeps you and me in Egypt. God has the power over everything. That's the point. For those who were willful and stubborn and would not accept it until God demonstrated again and again, and ultimately in the horrendous 10th plague. We need to be people that learn. Let's not push God to that. Let's learn what they, what Pharaoh was so slow to learn. That whatever gods were controlling and manifesting in Egypt, the plagues consistently demonstrate that God is greater. That God is more able to deliver than those gods are to oppress. He that is in us is greater than he that's in the world. And so, God, here's our cry, and God has the power. And thirdly, God asks, are you ready? Are you ready? In order to protect themselves... From the angel of death that would go throughout Egypt, taking the firstborn of each household. God invited them to have a meal. Like they were getting ready for a big journey. Do you ever have a final meal? Like you're about to go abroad. You think, I'm going to have um, uh, Yorkshire pudding. My final meal. Or you gather your family around because you're going on a journey. Or, Or it's the last night of a holiday before you go home. It was that. God says, have a special meal. Because you're about... ...to go on a journey. Gather the family together. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt... ...your sandals on your feet... ...and your stuff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's pass over. And as you know, they were to take the blood of the animal... ...that they killed for the meal, the lamb... ...that was to be perfect and carefully chosen... ...and they were to wipe it on the doorposts... ...and every house... ...through which the people had gone in... ...under the blood would be saved from the angel of death. But they were to eat ready. They were to adopt this position of moving out. And this is the true test. The true test of whether you and I really believe that God hears our cries. Whether you and I really believe that he has the power over the gods that control our lives. You have to eat ready. You have to live with your coat on, because God wants to lead you out. And often I find people, and whilst they say very loudly and very strongly, the last thing I want to do is stay in Egypt, I want to be delivered, I want out of this. You look down and you discover they're still wearing their slippers. You see, we can talk the talk sometimes about how we long for God to deliver us. But when we look for signs as to whether we really believe it in our lives, whether this is the night that God will break through, we still got our slippers on and our coats in the cupboard. And God says, you're not ready. You're not ready. How do I know that you're ready? Kill that lamb. Have that final meal. Get your coat on. Tuck it in. Tie up your sandals or your rebox, whatever it might be. Are you ready? Because I'm about to do an amazing thing. And so they left Egypt. But what's immediately apparent, what's so clear, so quickly, is that they might have left Egypt, but Egypt hasn't left them. Deliverance would not just mean getting us out of Egypt, but deliverance would mean getting Egypt out of us. God had moved in an extraordinary, powerful way. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. How stubborn can you be? He changes his mind. He's angry and he's uh, annoyed, to say the least, at what's happened. And he starts to head after the Egyptians, who are now heading towards the Red Sea after a little diversion, if you follow the detail. Uh, and, and there the Red Sea is, uh, and the Egyptians are coming in their chariots, uh, and the Israelites are here. And after God has spent months demonstrating his power over every single Egyptian God there was, God in heaven must be thinking, surely there's one person in the million or so Egyptians who will think, it's okay, chaps, God can deliver us from this. Just one. It's like church, isn't it? Couldn't find one. They're like, oh. They said, Moses, what have you done? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Why have you dragged us out here to die? Not one after all of that. So as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Notice they were scared and they were sarcastic. And that church life over and over. We're scared and we're sarcastic because we don't know what else to say. And there they were. After God had done all that. You see, they might have left Egypt... But the ways of Egypt, the living in fear of Pharaoh's might, the living with the belief that God maybe had abandoned them, the resignation that their lives were subject to the whim of circumstance and fate, the living with the belief that all they could do was make the best of a hopeless situation, those were the ways that characterized living in Egypt. There they'd live by fear. There they'd live by unbelief. There they'd live by hopelessness. You see, getting us out of Egypt was one thing. But getting Egypt out of them to live a new way was going to be quite something else. It wasn't just because they faced the Red Sea. After God had opened up the Red Sea and they walked miraculously across and God had saved them yet again, five, six weeks later, what are they doing in the desert? Grumbling, moaning. Why are we here? Moses, you're abandoning us to die. God's left us. We're starving. There's no food. There's no water. So the people grumbled against Moses. And that's what they did for the next three chapters. That's all the thanks Moses got for his efforts. It would have been better if we had died in Egypt. You see, in Egypt you could have understood them, couldn't you, cowering under the might of Pharaoh. In Egypt you could have understood them lamenting the hopelessness of their situation, of grumbling about the hardships and the unfairness and the lack of provision. But now all that was gone, yet the spirit of Egypt was still with them. They still lived as if it was hopeless. They still lived as if they were oppressed. We're a nation of grumblers. No? I think we're a nation of grumblers. Maybe once we had something to grumble about. But compared to the overwhelming majority of people, we've got nothing to grumble about. So we say tongue-in-cheek, how are you today? Oh, I mustn't grumble. (laughs) No! No, you mustn't grumble. That's an absurd response, given where you are in the world and the time that, you <coughs> the time that you're living. You mustn't grumble. And have you noticed that it doesn't matter whether there is really something to grumble about, we do it anyway. I used to walk three miles to work every day and I grumbled at how far it was. Now I go in my air-conditioned car and I grumble that the traffic lights are slow to change. And in our lives, God delivers us from stuff, but we carry on living in the spirit of oppression. Have you ever met a Christian like that? It's really sad. It's really sad. We carry on living as if he has. Not the bloke in, that Jesus talked about. Jesus said was this bloke, he owed thousands and thousands, of millions in effect. He could never repay it. The king says, you're free to go. Did he live in that freedom? No, he went out and throttled someone who owed him a fiver and said, I want that back. And we live like that. We've got to get out of Egypt, but we've got to get Egypt out of us. My gran died 10 years ago, last month. Uh, She was an incredible woman. In the early 1900s, she went to university uh, and got a degree as a woman and became a teacher, almost unheard of at that stage in our country's journey. She then gave all that up to marry my granddad. Is there ever a man worth that? Well, she found one. And in those days, you had to do that. Her achievement was all the more remarkable because of her upbringing. She lived through the scarcity of the First World War and in the household of an alcoholic father. Which of those contributed most, I don't know, but she learnt young that you could never be sure when or where the next meal would come. So she developed a habit of not eating everything, but saving some for later, because you never know. Fifty years on, when I was in my childhood, I watched my grand not eat it all, but save some for later, because you never know. In those days, my granddad and grandma owned their own house. They owned their own car. They could afford holidays abroad. She was completely delivered from her Egypt of not knowing from when or where the next meal would come. But so ingrained within her was the spirit of her Egypt that she lived as if she was still there. Sad, isn't it? And we live like that so many times, so many times. We talk in prayer ministry about walking out your healing for somebody, something terrible perhaps happened in their lives, and it it spoke to the core of their being. It gave them an image of themselves, which was uh, completely false, but from which they could never uh, felt able to escape. Uh, Whatever it might be, you're picked on in your teens, you're laughed at at class, the, the day your father said you'll never make it, there's 101 things that do this kind of thing to our lives. And then God wonderfully and beautifully heals you from the pain and the trauma of that memory. You're delivered out of Egypt. It's a brilliant and beautiful and wonderful thing. Yet if you're not careful, you can so easily still live Thinking and reacting out of that sense of failure, out of that lack of self-esteem, out of not believing that God loves you, that you're not truly forgiven, out of the shame that you felt, even though you've been healed and what caused those feelings in you is now gone. Why? Because the way of thinking, that way of living, that way of behaving, responding and reacting is so ingrained in us, so habitual, you continue to do it even though you need not to. It was going to take 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. It could have been so much quicker. And it can be for us if we're willing to learn just one lesson that occupies the chapters immediately following the Exodus to the end of our section for today. So chapters 16 and onwards. See, the one thing that they needed to learn. The one nugget of truth, if they could put it into practice, would faster than anything else kick Egypt out of their lives, was to learn daily trust. To learn daily trust. And God gets to work on that straight away. If you look at chapter 16 and verse 3, uh, the Israelites said to them, if only we died. They're still moaning and grumbling. There at least we had food to eat. You've brought us into this desert. We're going to starve to death. They're sounding like slaves, aren't they? Sounding like slaves just after they've been freed. Uh, And God says, okay, well, well, I'm going to test you. I'm going to teach you. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread uh, from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I'll test them. I'll teach them and see whether they will follow my instructions. The test was, could they learn to put their trust in God new every day? That's it. Could they learn that? You see, to trust God daily means to leave old habits behind. To trust God daily means not to think, to react, to behave to live like you used to. To trust God daily allows no place for the ways of Egypt to continue in your life. They were slow to learn, but look at verse 18. God's provision was perfect for them. Each one gathered as much as he needed. God's provision is always perfect. It's all you need. So listen to what they were saying in their spirit every time they grumbled there in the desert. Every time they grumbled, they were declaring that Pharaoh's provision back in Egypt was better than God's. Every time you live out of the spirit of Egypt, you are declaring that the old way of life provides for you better than God's new way of life does. Can you see why it's so important? this spirit in us must be broken. For as long as we act in the new world, using ways that belong to the old world, we are saying to God, this new world you've brought me into is not enough. Your provision is not all that I need. I still need the pots and the meat and the hardship back in Egypt. Thank you. Then I'll be happy. I doubt it. And God has healed you rescued you in some area of your life, to continue to think and act and feel out of that old way is to say God's provision for you is not enough. And so they were learning. I love the fact that Moses says, don't keep any till the morning. You know, I would have gathered it for a week, that would take the pressure off, wouldn't it? I've got a week's food in my tent And some tried that. I can't hack this worrying every day if God's going to show up. I'll take it into my own hands. God says no you can't do that. It was full of maggots in your kitchen. Those that said I'll take things into my own hands. They would need to learn to trust each and every day because God knows the tendency of the human heart. It is so easy to slip back. Have you ever slipped back? Ah, oh, you have a really good day trusting God. And you go, phew, I've made it. And you get into bed really proud and smug, all those bad things. And then the next day, you kind of, ah, oh, and you've lost it. Every day, you've got to wake up every day and go, I'm trusting God today. I'm going out for my manna. In the evening before I go, I'm trusting God today. I'm going out for my quail. This is the God that provides, this is the new way to live. I cannot act and think and, and behave the way I used to in Egypt. Except, of course, on the seventh day, because God's that clever. And you can get two on the seventh day, and it won't have any maggots in it. And do you know what happens after six days? Some muppets go out. Can you imagine those peering through the tent to see who went out to have a look? No? Just me then. So I imagine peering through my tent, and a few people go out. To, Ooh, they're, they're good Christians. They went, I better go as well like when you see the bins out and you think, oh, I better put mine out as well. (laughs) Yeah, you do that. I can tell you're laughing embarrassingly. Yes, Uh, you're looking through and and, and one went, who was the first that went out? The other, Oh, we should be going out. Uh, No. Who are you trusting? Who are you watching? Who's providing for your life? And every time you grumble, you say that the new way is not providing for you in the way that it should. The people who left Egypt still live like they were in Egypt. That's really sad, isn't it? People who have been liberated and rescued and saved and forgiven fill our churches sometimes and live like they haven't been. How sad is that? How sad is that? So hear this. If still that thing that you said some moments ago, the thing that most holds you, Hear this, God hears your cry. You can be delivered from that. And maybe you're thinking, well, actually, I know God's done a huge work in my life. Well, hey, if that be true, you don't need to live that way then any more. It's a new day. Grace notes, here we go, 30 seconds. Did you notice the God who came down to rescue? God says, I'm coming down to rescue them. Did you notice the miraculous signs, the twelve, the ten plagues that preceded the deliverance? Jesus did signs, miraculous signs, before he delivered us on the cross. Did you notice the lamb that was carefully chosen and sacrificed? Not just any old lamb. And they would say of Jesus, uh, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Choose a perfect lamb and look after it and care for it, then kill it. Uh, And did you notice the doorway to life? The doorway that had the blood of the lamb. Painted, and if you went through the door you were safe you walked into a a new life and Jesus would one day say I am the gate whoever walks in through me will be saved and did you notice the outstretched hand did you notice that Moses stretches out his hand and the way of certain death becomes the way of life who would have believed that God himself would one day stretch out his hands so that the way of certain death would become for you and me certain life. Let's pray.